Chapter 18. Relating to people who aren't like us. The body of Christ is not one member but many. 1 Corinthians 12.14 As in a physical body, the many members of Jesus Christ's spiritual body aren't all identical and don't all serve the same function. There are varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verses 4-6 through six, ESV But our gifts aren't the only thing that make us different from each other. When God calls us into His church, He doesn't call us from only one specific culture or one specific walk of life. When He places us in the body of Christ, He doesn't group us according to our profession or life experiences. He puts us where we need to be. When Paul wrote about the future that God promises us, he explained, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 In terms of our value in the eyes of God, in terms of our potential as His children, these distinctions are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your societal status is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Why? Because you are a child of God. That's what matters. And we are all made one in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. Those other distinctions don't matter at all when it comes to our eternal destiny. Except there are times when those things do matter. When it comes to how we relate to each other, these things absolutely matter. Your culture, your social status, your gender, these things become the frame of reference you use to navigate the world around you. They don't somehow disappear when you become part of God's church. What does that mean for us? Just this, that even within the boundaries of the body of Christ, we are going to encounter people who, for all intents and purposes, didn't grow up in the same world we did. And even when we remove those distinctions from the equation, when we find someone who grew up in the exact same world we did, we might discover that they don't see the world the same way we do. They might have a personality that seems determined to clash with ours at every turn. When those encounters happen within the church, when those two drastically different worlds collide, it can be intensely uncomfortable or even disastrous. But it doesn't have to be. When we take the time to step back and reassess the right way to handle these encounters, they can result in positive, encouraging, and even edifying forms of fellowship. In this chapter, we'll look at two general categories of people we might initially clash with. Those who live or have lived in a different world than the one we know, and those who process the world differently than we do. What if we're coming from different worlds? The world you know, the life you've lived, these things are unique to you. That's where we have to start if we're going to talk about this. It's easy for each of us to look at our individual life experiences and interpret them as the way the world works, as if the things we've experienced and the life we've led offers the definitive perspective for understanding the world. But there are 8 billion people spread across seven continents. And while we all share the same planet, the worlds we live in can be wildly different. Add roughly 6,000 years of human history and tradition into the mix, and you can begin to see how attempting to come away with a comprehensive view of it all is an impossible task. An Iranian woman who came of age before the Iranian Revolution of 1977 did not grow up in the same world as an Iranian woman who came of age after that revolution. A Hispanic man living in a South Bronx ghetto 
is not living in the same world as a white man living in a Manhattan high-rise just five miles away. A Kenyan from the Maasai tribe is not living in the same world as a Kenyan from the Kikuyu tribe. Life is not the same in a Turkish hamlet as it is in an Indonesian slum or an Italian seaside village or a Chinese megalopolis. Life is not the same for the rich as it is for the poor. Life is not the same for men as it is for women. These are each dividing lines of different worlds. For the first century church, the big dividing lines were culture, Jews and Greeks, social status, slaves and free, and gender, male and female. And although the lines have shifted a little over the course of 2,000 years, these three categories will always play the biggest role in defining how we come to perceive the world around us. In practice, that means your functional understanding of how the world works is, without a doubt, absolutely inaccurate. The world you know, the world you live in, the world you grew up with, the world you use as a frame of reference and measuring stick is just the smallest sliver of the actual world. The priorities of your world, its fears and concerns, its hopes and dreams, the way it functions, these are not all universal things. You don't understand how the world works. You understand how a small part of an infinitesimal sliver of the world works. As humans, that's all any of us will ever understand. Even if you had the time and the means to travel and live among all the cultures of the world, you still wouldn't truly understand them the way someone who grew up in all those cultures would. In so many ways, your perspective is unique to you. So what does that mean for us? It means that in a church God designed to include people coming from all walks of life, we're going to have to stifle a few basic human impulses. When we hear someone talk about an issue in a way that conflicts with our own experience, it's so easy to default to saying, no, that's not my experience, so your perspective is wrong. Don't do that. Remember, slivers. We're each working with a sliver of understanding about how the world works. When someone else is talking about a different world, even if that world exists in the same country, city, or neighborhood as the one you live in, don't dismiss it out of hand. Instead, try, wow, that's not been my experience. Tell me about yours. I'd like to understand. There's a world of difference in that approach. James told us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James 1.19 Human nature often nudges us to do the opposite, to be slow to consider the words of others, swift to interrupt them, and swift to become indignant to get angry and stop listening, to decide what we think the truth of the matter must be and to never consider an opposing view, to not hear what's being said. When we cross paths with people from a different sliver of the world, who confront us with a glimpse into how their sliver is different from ours, we shouldn't be quick to dismiss their experiences as invalid or flawed. We should be eager to understand, to ask questions, to listen before we tell to discover what makes their sliver different from ours and what our slivers have in common. Don't make the mistake of assuming you know what it's like in a world you've never lived in. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Proverbs 18.13 Ask. Listen. Learn. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. 
be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 9. That doesn't mean we should never make any kind of judgment call. What God calls wrong is always wrong. What God calls right is always right. In the face of God's word, our culture, status, and gender are irrelevant. But when it comes to understanding where each of us is coming from, these distinctions make a literal world of difference. As we come into the church, there are some traditions and activities God expects us to leave behind, regardless of what our slivers of the world think about them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? asked Paul. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 were. Some of these activities were perfectly acceptable in Corinthian culture, but not to God. The Corinthians had to leave certain things behind them, and in the process, they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11. When we become part of God's church, we take on a different culture. We take on God's culture. That doesn't mean we all need to like the same foods or have the same pastimes or listen to the same music. There are plenty of wonderful things that come from our respective worlds. God's goal isn't to have us discard those things and become identical carbon copies of each other. What it does mean is that wherever God sets distinction, wherever he says this is right or this is wrong or this is the kind of person you should be, we must allow that distinction to override any competing aspect of who we are. One of the truly incredible things about our fellowship with God is that it brings us into fellowship with people from different worlds than our own. It provides us with a common ground, our common or shared salvation, Jude 1 verse 3, and allows us to mesh together as the body of Christ. It's okay that we're not all the same. It's okay that someone is coming to the table with a different perspective of the world than you have. As long as we are human beings living in a physical universe, our distinctions will always impact how we see the world around us. What matters is that these distinctions don't change God's ultimate plan for us. What matters is that even though we all come from different worlds, we're heading toward the same world. What matters is that we are all coming to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 That we are continuing to grow up in all things into Him who is the Head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Verses 15-16 through Along the way, Let's take the time to listen to and learn from those whose slivers of the world don't look the same as ours. What if we're looking at the world differently? For thousands of years, philosophers and researchers have been interested in the subject of personality. What makes one person look at the world differently from the next? Why does one person laugh when another might cry? What's going on behind the scenes? As far back as the 3rd century BC, 
The Greek physician Hippocrates identified four fundamental personality types, or temperaments. He believed these temperaments were tied to an imbalance of bodily fluids known as the four humors. Too much black bile made people melancholic or depressed. Too much yellow bile made them choleric, angry, and irate. Too much phlegm made them, well, phlegmatic, or unemotional and apathetic. And too much blood made them sanguine, overly optimistic. We know today that Hippocrates was wrong. Our moods aren't somehow tied to our bodily fluids. But our interest in our personalities and what makes them tick hasn't gone away. Today, there are a whole host of tests you can take, each designed to measure your personality against a variety of variables. Let's be clear from the outset. No personality test is perfect, and some of them aren't even useful. Worse, when we start putting people into clearly defined boxes, we make it easy to paint with a broad brush and make assumptions. You're an introvert, so you'll prefer this. Or, you're a feeler, not a thinker, so I'm sure you're looking at this issue from this perspective. While we might find personality types, traits, and motivations to be true generally, and while they might offer us insight into different ways of looking at the world, we have to remember that these are imperfect tools for making sense of a vastly complicated topic that scientists, therapists, psychologists, and counselors still routinely argue about. They do not and cannot offer us flawless insight into others. Still, if there's one thing to be gleaned from all this interest in measuring and studying and quantifying the personalities of the world, it's this. Personalities matter. No, we might not have a perfect personality test. And yes, researchers might still be arguing over the most important traits and best ways to measure them. But at least two things are clear. One, different personality types exist. Two, our personalities impact how we process the world around us. As Christians, that means we're guaranteed to encounter people who see the world a little differently than we do, and who interact with it a little differently too. And while personality tests aren't perfect, they do offer us some tools for understanding the different ways people relate to the world around us. For example, some people are introverts. They tend to enjoy solitary activities and find social interaction draining. Others are extroverts, preferring to avoid solitude. They are energized by interacting with others. This is not the same as being shy or friendly. We will talk about that more in the next section of this chapter. Some people, when they receive information, take it at face value and focus on the facts as they've been presented. Others will take that same information and start wondering about implications and future possibilities. When some people make decisions, they downplay the role of emotions as superfluous, preferring to focus only on data and facts. Other people make decisions by carefully considering how those decisions will make others feel. Some people like to organize and structure their lives, while others enjoy improvising and making new plans on the fly. Some people are more prone to stress and self-doubt, always pushing themselves to be the best they can be. Others are more even-tempered, confident in their ability to achieve goals without overworking themselves. None of these personality traits are inherently right or wrong. They're just different. It's easy to clash with people who have different traits than we have. If you put emphasis on how other people feel, you might be frustrated when dealing with someone whose primary focus is efficiency and savings, and vice versa. If you like organization and structure, dealing with someone who hates to commit to a firm plan might drive you crazy, and vice versa. Understanding how people look at the world can be helpful for finding a way to peacefully coexist with those who do things we don't understand. It's rare that a person is intentionally trying to sabotage and undermine a situation. 
and far more likely that a person's personality makes it easier for him or her to look at the situation from a completely different perspective than the one we're used to. Paul told the Romans, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Romans 12.10 This can be difficult to do when we believe our way of looking at the world is the right way. Part of being a Christian requires a willingness to say, I think we're looking at the issue from different perspectives, but I'd like to understand where you're coming from. Can you walk me through why you think that way? Of course, saying that requires us to actually listen to what the other person has to say. We won't get anywhere if the only thing we're looking to do is prove why we're right. That said, it doesn't matter if we're coming from different worlds or just looking at the world differently. No personality trait allows us to override the Word of God. God gives us fences to stay within, regardless of how we prefer to interact with the world around us. Here's an example. When you have to make a decision, it doesn't matter how efficient or cost-effective your options are, you'll have to discard any options that bring you into conflict with God's commandments. God's truth should never be ignored when we make decisions. On the other hand, there are times when a specific decision might be perfectly acceptable according to God's commandments, but it would still negatively impact those around you. In those moments, the real issue isn't about what we're allowed to do, it's about what we should do as an act of kindness to others. For example, there was nothing technically wrong with eating clean meats offered to idols, see 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4, but not all possess this knowledge, verse 7 ESV. Paul concluded, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble, verse 13. He could eat meat, but he wouldn't if it would cause problems for others. These different personality types often play into our different spiritual gifts. An extrovert might be more likely to organize a service project. An introvert might be more likely to write a heartfelt, meaningful card. A person who takes facts at face value might be excellent at explaining what's happening in biblical passages. A person who thinks through implications might be excellent at connecting multiple scriptures and examining the bigger picture behind it all. Remember, as different parts of the body of Christ, we're not intended to be the same. We're not intended to perform the same exact function or to come to every situation with the same exact perspective. We are intended to have put off the old man with his deeds and to have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3 verses 9 through 11. The more we take the time to understand the personalities of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the more we can appreciate the incredible variety God has placed into his church. And the more we can appreciate how each of us is striving toward the same goal of becoming more like our creator. Extroverts and introverts. In terms of fellowship, these two personality traits are worth spending a little extra time talking about. Introversion and extroversion play a big role in determining what happens while you fellowship with others. It helps to imagine people as if they were equipped with a battery. For extroverts, social interaction charges that battery and leaves them feeling energized. For introverts, social interaction often does the exact opposite. It drains their batteries and leaves them feeling worn out. Introverts recharge their batteries by finding solitude and processing their thoughts and feelings in private. That process can be as draining to extroverts as social interaction can be for introverts. Most personality tests look at extroversion and introversion as a spectrum. 
People who fall in the middle of that spectrum are often called ambiverts, with the activities that drain or recharge their batteries varying and changing on a regular basis. Maybe the most important thing to understand about introversion and extroversion is that introversion is not the same as being shy or antisocial, and extroversion is not the same as being outgoing and friendly. This part of the book has been exclusively focused on the importance and value of fellowship in a Christian's life. God did not give half of us a personality trait designed to make sure we can't benefit from or enjoy social interaction, and he certainly didn't give us personalities that would excuse us from fellowship altogether. Even Carl Jung, who introduced the concepts of introversion and extroversion to the field of psychology, remarked in an interview, There is no such thing as a pure extrovert or a pure introvert. Such a man would be in the lunatic asylum. Those are only terms to designate a certain tendency. More to the point, the Christian life requires us to operate in many locations along the extroversion-introversion spectrum. An introvert will probably have an easier time recharging his or her battery during moments of study and reflection while an extrovert will accomplish the same thing by talking and discussing with others. But all these activities are important. If our introversion leads us to shy away from others and refuse to fellowship with our brethren, something's wrong. If our extroversion leads us to never slow down enough to engage in prayer, study, and meditation, something's wrong. An extrovert can find meaning and value in studying, and an introvert can find meaning and value in conversation. In other words, the difference between these two personality types is what they do to recharge. Neither one is an excuse for avoiding certain aspects of Christianity, and neither one is a free pass to avoid growing in the areas God called us to grow in. That said, introverts and extroverts tend to have unique strengths and weaknesses. Understanding those strengths and weaknesses can help us relate to each other, support each other, and lean into our God-given abilities. It shouldn't come as a surprise that extroverts tend to prefer more stimulating environments, while introverts tend to prefer less stimulating ones. When introverts feel their batteries running low, they'll naturally tend to seek out less stimulation, whereas extroverts will tend to seek out more. Because extroverts thrive in those high-stimulus environments, they tend to develop a knack for socializing with others. Their extroversion and excitement for social situations help to naturally connect groups of people together, sometimes making them the de facto leader of whatever group they happen to be in. Because introverts thrive in low-stimulus environments, they tend to develop a knack for introspection and analytical thinking. Their introversion and desire to carefully think through issues often lead to deeper insights and a desire for meaningful, focused conversation. When dealing with introverts, here's a list of things extroverts should try to remember. Introverts are draining their batteries to be in social situations. It doesn't mean that they don't want to be there. It just means they can usually only stay for so long before it gets hard to be there. Engaging introverts on subjects that excite and interest them can give them a way to recharge their batteries in a social setting, or at least not drain them quite as fast. Introverts are often happy to connect over things they've spent time thinking deeply about. A quiet introvert is not a disinterested introvert. Introverts often prefer to watch and listen from the sidelines before wading into a larger group conversation. Sometimes they might need a direct question to convince them to share their thoughts. Patience is key when dealing with introverts. If they feel rushed, hurried, or pressured, it's easy for them to shut down and stop participating in a conversation altogether. Make sure to let them finish their thoughts before you share yours. Introverts often come to a conversation with a decent amount of anxiety or stress about what they'll say and how they'll say it. Positive feedback can help reduce those worries. 
Find a way to let them know their contributions to a conversation are meaningful, and they'll be more likely to keep contributing. You're more likely to get introverts talking in smaller groups where they feel safe and accepted by those around them. When dealing with extroverts, here's a list of things introverts should try to remember. Many extroverts enjoy a conversation for the sake of conversation. It might not come naturally to you, but remember that conversation is valuable to them. The more effort you put into it, the more you help to recharge their batteries. Extroverts are often content to jump from subject to subject depending on the flow of a conversation. This can be frustrating when you want to give your attention to a single subject. You'll have to learn to go with the flow sometimes, but you can also circle back to an earlier subject with a segue like, when we were talking about previous subject, I had a thought. Remember that while introverts often think to talk, extroverts often talk to think. Don't immediately assume that everything an extrovert says represents a core, deeply held belief. More often than not, extroverts are trying to arrive at their beliefs by discussing issues out loud. Because extroverts thrive in the outside world, they tend to do a lot of their thinking there as well. Extroverts tend to be more energetic in conversation. They might even interrupt you while you're in the middle of sharing a thought. It can be off-putting, but it's almost never intended maliciously. They just love participating in the back and forth of a conversation. Try to take it in stride and look for an opportunity to resume your train of thought a little later. But more than anything else, extroverts and introverts should both remember that these bullet points are general principles and not hard and fast laws. They are true sometimes and for some people, not always and for everyone. When we start to treat all extroverts or all introverts as if they were all cast from the same exact mold, we're bound to make some incredibly unhelpful assumptions. Keep these principles in mind, but never forget that people are a unique blend of more variables than a couple of labels could ever account for. Introverts, extroverts, ambiverts, wherever you and your fellow brethren fall on that spectrum, at the end of the day, the most important label is that you are all God's children. Acknowledging and understanding the differences in the way you see the world is a valuable first step on the road to meaningful Christian fellowship.